You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our God is a God of deliverances. Our God specializes in delivering the godly from temptation. He specializes in delivering His elect from the punishment of sin. He specializes in delivering His holy ones from physical danger. Our God is a God of deliverances. And all the way through Scripture, one of the ways that God is talked about is as a God of deliverance. He specializes in deliverance. The Psalms, let me read a couple of passages from the Psalms that speak of God's delivering activity. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 18, verse 50, He gives great deliverance to His King. Psalm 40, verse 17, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. And Psalm 68, verse 20, God is to us a God of deliverances. And the psalmists oftentimes prayed for God's deliverance in their lives. Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Psalm 25, verse 20, Guard my soul and deliver me. Psalm 31, verse 15, My times are in Your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. And it was even appropriate to pray to God for physical deliverance. Psalm 22, verse 20, Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. In the New Testament, deliverance is primarily spoken of in terms of our salvation. Deliverance is spoken of in spiritual terms. That is to say that salvation is deliverance and deliverance is salvation. And the emphasis in the New Testament is on Christ as our spiritual deliverer. He came to save, that is to deliver His people from their sins. Our God delivers us from the wrath for our sin, from the penalty of our sin, the power of sin. He will one day deliver us from the very presence of sin entirely. And even today, God specializes in delivering His elect, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And for His people, He brings them out and calls us out of the kingdom of darkness and translates us into the kingdom of His dear Son. He delivers us because our God is a God of deliverances. God is called a deliverer and He is prayed to for deliverance and the New Testament portrays Him as delivering His people primarily because God is able to deliver His people. Now think about this. If God was weak and insipid, there would be no reason to pray for Him to Him for deliverance, would there? If He is not able to deliver me, if He is too weak, if His hand is too short to save me, then what's the point of trusting in Him and praying to Him and expecting Him to deliver me? And if God cannot deliver me from my physical circumstances, then what's to say He can deliver me from my sin? If God cannot deliver me physically, that is to remove me from danger or to remove me from difficult situations, then what confidence do I have or what confidence could I ever have that God is able to deliver me from the penalty of my sin and from the power of my sin, and from eventually the presence of my sin. God is able to deliver us. Psalm 115, verse 3. 
Our God is in the heavens, and He does what He pleases. And there is nobody who can stop Him. He does what He wills, when He wills it, how He wills it, with whom He wills it, because He is able. And there is nobody who can stop Him. His hand is not so short that He cannot save. There is nothing that prevents Him from doing anything He wants to do. And it is that confidence which led Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say to Nebuchadnezzar when he threatened them with the fiery furnace, we're fine with that king, but you need to know that our God is able to deliver us and He will deliver us from your hand. They knew that their God was able. Now, if I have the confidence that my God is able to deliver me from anything, then I know that if I am not delivered from a situation, why is it? It's not because God is weak. It's not because He is impotent or because He is insipid or because He's a weakling. It's not because of any of that. What is it because of? It is because He has me as His child in the position that He wants me, where He wants me, when He wants me, and it's for His good pleasure. It is for my benefit. It is for His glory that He leaves me there. But in the midst of the situation, in the presence of the circumstance, I can rest in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and have the confidence that if He wants me out of it, He will bail me out of it when He wants me out of it, and He will get me out how He wants me out of it. I can have that confidence because my God is able. And in the midst of difficulty, I can rest. I can have confidence, and I can sit back and trust the Lord and wait upon Him and pray to Him, knowing that He is able to deliver me. And that is exactly what the apostles do in Acts chapter 5. The text that we read this morning is the text that we're going to be looking at. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5 and let your eyes fall down to verse 17. That's where we're going to be picking it up. The apostles find themselves running head to head again with the religious authorities of their day. The Sanhedrin, the high priests, and his cohorts, the Sadducees. They find themselves at odds again with the religious establishment that they have come out of, that they were delivered out of, and they find themselves in a place where they are in need of God's deliverance. And yet we see them acting with such confidence, such boldness, such peace, such rest and tranquility. Why is that? Because they believe that their God is able to deliver them. And they rest in that. And in Acts chapter 5, God does indeed deliver them. But first of all, you have to understand why they're in trouble. They are in trouble because of what we read up in verses 12 through 16. You remember they, many miracles, signs, and wonders were taking place at the hands of the apostles to such an extent that they were bringing the sick people out into the streets and laying them on cots just in order that Peter's shadow might come across one of them and that they would be healed by it. And people from the vicinity around Jerusalem were coming into the city and, and coming to the apostles wanting physical deliverance, physical healing. And the text says in verse 15 and 16 that all of them were being healed. Well, this didn't go over well with those who were popular at the time, but were losing popularity. Because you'll notice in verse 17, Luke says, But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy because the apostles' fame was reaching grand proportions. 
everybody was glomming on to Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew and all of the rest of the apostles. These men were healing and performing signs and wonders and their name and the name of Christ was spreading. And all of the high priests saw this. And they understood that their popularity meant them losing a following. And so they become jealous. And Luke says in verse 17 that the high priest rose up. The high priest is likely Annas. Uh, Caiaphas was serving as high priest at the time, but Luke calls Annas the high priest back in chapter 4. You remember Annas from chapter 4 was the power behind the priesthood? He was Caiaphas' father-in-law. He was the one that Jesus was to deliver to first. And then Annas and Caiaphas, between the two of them, orchestrated the whole crucifixion weekend and saw to it that Christ was crucified. Annas and his cohorts, that is, the sect of the Sadducees. Do you remember who the Sadducees are? The Sadducees were that little more political group than religious group. That political group who had the control of the Sanhedrin, the control of the priesthood. They had the majority on the Sanhedrin. They were in cahoots with the Romans. They liked the status quo. They didn't want a revolution. They didn't want anybody disturbing anything because it would upset their power base, their ability to sort of work with the higher-ups of the Roman government. And they were also the theological liberals of the day. They denied the supernatural. They denied the spiritual. They denied a literal Messiah. To them, the Messiah was an ideal. It was sort of this ideal that you and I and, and the rest of us, we progress towards messianicness. It's just sort of this ideal in the sky, and we can all become sort of messiahs. And there's no literal Messiah and no literal messianic age. They denied the sovereignty of God. They denied that God intervenes in human affairs. They did not believe in the doctrine of resurrection. Do you remember that? They don't believe that God raises the dead to life. They don't believe that there will be a resurrection at the end. They didn't believe in life after death. They don't believe in eternal rewards and eternal punishment. Just the cessation of existence. They're theological liberals. The high priest rises up with the Sadducees, verse 17 says, and his associates, and they are filled with jealousy. They are jealous because of what the apostles are accomplishing, and there's something that they cannot tolerate. It is that this man who once was dead is now alive, and people are performing miracles in his name. And so they grab the apostles, and they throw the apostles in prison. It says that they put them in the public jail, which is different than the jail that they were in in Acts chapter 4. This is the public jail. The other one was probably the temple jail. The public jail is where thieves and murderers and rapists go. This is the difference between sort of a holding juvenile facility and a penitentiary, so to speak. They throw them in the public jail where the worst of criminals are held. And I think it's all of the apostles that are arrested this time. Notice Luke doesn't say it was Peter and John. He just says the apostles. Back in chapter 4, he doesn't say the apostles. He specifies two of them. So here's what I think is going on. I think the high priests and the Sadducees finally understand we have to deal with these men and not just deal with one or two or three of them. We've got to round up the whole 12 of them and bring them all in. And I think their intention is to stomp this movement out entirely. Because if you look down at the verse 33, after Peter's message, it says they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they intended to kill them. I think that's in the back of their minds is eventually what they're planning to do anyway. They round up all 12 of the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But something happens. Verse 19. But an angel, but an angel during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, 
Now listen to this. There's a, a note of irony here in verse 19 that you and I are intended to pick up on. Did you catch what it is? How are they delivered? By an angel. What is the one thing that the Sadducees deny exists? Did you catch it? An angel. Isn't it awesome how God takes their false doctrine and their noses and sort of rubs their noses in their own false doctrine? The theological liberals, they deny the existence of angels. Won't have anything to do with it. Deny that God intervenes in the affairs of men. Don't have anything to do with it. So how does the Lord choose to deliver His people? With an angel. Listen, God could have chosen a dozen different ways to set them free. He could have used an earthquake like He does for Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. He could have just transported them from the cell to outside like He does Philip in Acts chapter 8. He could have caused the guard to drop a key. He could have caused the guards to fall asleep. He could have caused a guard to forget to latch and lock the gate. He could have done it a number of ways. But how does He do it? He chooses an angel who comes in in the middle of the night and we're not told so much more than we're told. We're not told exactly how the angel does this. Does the angel cause the guards to fall asleep? Or does the angel just cause the jail door, the apostles, and himself to become invisible to the guard? Or does the angel unlatch the thing and help the, help the apostles sort of sneak past the guard? We're not told any of that. All we know is that they are supernaturally delivered by an angel. They are, the gate is opened up, the apostles are led out, and then the angel gives them a commission. Look what the commission is in verse 19. He says to them, go stand and speak to the people in the temple. Are you kidding me? Don't you understand we were just arrested in the temple? And don't you understand that the first time we were arrested, it was in the temple? And now you're telling us to go back into the temple? Why in the world would we go back into the temple and teach the people when twice now we have been arrested out of the temple? Why would the angel tell them to do that? is because the Lord wants this message right under the nose of those who oppose them the most. And so the angel says, go into the temple where you were arrested, where the opposition is the strongest, where it is the hottest, and there you to speak to the people. And what are they to speak? The whole message of this life. In other words, don't leave anything out. The angel doesn't say to the apostles, okay, now that you're set free, cut and run. Go hide. Get out of here, go into the houses, find somebody who will put you behind locked doors and pretend you're not there. The angel doesn't say that. He says to the apostles, go right into the temple. That's where I want you to preach to this people. And here's the message. Everything. The whole message of this life. That is the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, which the Sadducees hate. The high priest hated the death of Christ. They're to preach the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and His calling of them, and the message to repent and believe in Him for eternal life. The whole message, the angel says, don't hold any of it back. In other words, there's all of these elements of the message that are going to become very offensive to the Sadducees. Those are the things you're to teach. Yes, it's going to offend the Sadducees. Yes, it's going to offend the priests. And it's going to offend some of the people. But what are you to teach? The whole message of this life. Don't leave anything out. The angel does not deliver the apostles for their own comfort or for their own sake, or for their own security. Why does the angel deliver the apostles? Why does the Lord break them out of prison? So that they can serve. Did you catch that? So that they could serve. You've been set free. Now here's what I want you to do. Go do it. That's what they're commissioned to do. Friends, the same is true with you and I. 
You and I are not set free from our sin and delivered from hell only so that we can be comfortable, only so that we can be secure or for our own sakes. You and I have been set free in order to serve. We have, in the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we have turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's what we've been set free to. We've been delivered to service. And that's what God expects of us. And that's what the angel tells the apostles. So look what they do. Down in verse 21, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. That's going to be a long day, isn't it? The sun is just coming up when they walk into the temple. But that's when the people start coming in for the daily activities and the worship. And the priests are showing up early to, for the, all of the functions of the temple. And the apostles show up right at daybreak and they begin to teach the people. Now, you've got to catch the irony behind the whole thing. There's this little note of humor in this whole episode. Meanwhile, back at the Sanhedrin, verse 21, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all of the senate of the sons of Israel. So they're all gathered there. They gather in the chamber where the Sanhedrin meets. There's over 70 members of the Sanhedrin there, probably plus a lot of the priests and plus a lot of the the Sanhedrin members' assistants and their associates and all of this, the whole Senate, every ruler is there. Every chief priest, every high-ranking authority in the nation of Israel is gathered there in Jerusalem. And I can just picture the scene as they're all taking their seats, ready to bring these quote-unquote guilty men out into their presence, and their case is prepared. They have all of their accusations and all of their charges are ready, and they give the order, go fetch the men. All right. The officers take off to the prison. The officers come back. Where are they? You don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You put them in prison last night. You locked the doors. You set the guard. You went home. You went to sleep. You went there, didn't you? Yeah, we went there. But what happened? Well, we found the prison doors were locked. And notice they say quite securely. We found the prison doors were locked. We found the guards were stationed at their place. But then when we opened the doors, there were nobody inside. Nobody inside? How can there be nobody inside? Did they tunnel through the wall? No. Did they tunnel through the floor? No. Did somebody tear off the ceiling and lift them out in the middle of the night? No. Did they come out through the door? No. The guards were there. It was locked. They were gone. Now, if you're a Sadducee and a high priest, what are you thinking in your mind? You assume supernatural deliverance, right? No, of course you don't. You don't believe in that. You don't believe that God intervenes in the affairs of men. It's anything but angelic. It's anything but divine. It is anything but supernatural. So with their liberal, patently unbiblical worldview, what option are they left with? There's somebody on the inside, it must be, who would set these men free. They must have a sympathizer in the temple guard. They must have a sympathizer, even worse yet, on the Sanhedrin. Somebody set them free in the middle of the night. Who could it be? Look what the text says. The officers came. They didn't find them in prison, verse 22. They returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, the guards standing in the doors. And when we'd opened, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. You bet they are. And so they asked themselves as to what would come of this. It's the question they're asking. What's going to come of this? When is this going to stop? How far is this insanity going to go? They're wondering to themselves, are they even going to be able to stop this thing? 
What is going to come of this Christian movement? Because now these men are gone and they're perplexed. And while they're ruminating in their minds and, and turning over all of these events and trying to come up with an answer, somebody comes rushing in. Luke doesn't say who it is. But somebody comes in and he says to them, the men whom you arrested and put in prison are in the temple teaching. Now who is the man who came in? Could have been a priest from the temple who showed up for work that morning and walked out into the temple courts and here's Peter and John and the rest of them teaching the people and he rushes back to the Sanhedrin and they're all shocked. So they send for men to fetch him. And they go this time, not to the prison, but this time to get the apostles, they go to the temple. Now, why did God want the apostles, Peter, James, and the rest of them, to go back into the temple? Why did he orchestrate this whole event? Do you know why it is? He wanted the gospel right here in the middle of the whole thing. He wanted it front and center. He wanted everybody who opposed his son, all of the rulers, all of the priests, all of the teachers of the people who so hated Christ that they crucified him, he wanted all of them to be confronted again with the gospel. Acts chapter 2, Peter preached to those people. In Acts chapter 4, he preached to those same rulers. And in Acts chapter 5, he gets another shot at preaching to those people. God wanted the gospel right there in the middle of the Sanhedrin, and he wanted to put his mouthpiece, Peter, James, John, and the rest of them, right there to proclaim the truth claims of Christianity to those men. Why is that? Look over at chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and a number of the disciples, the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's the outcome of this whole thing. A great many of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. That could never have happened if God had not taken Peter and John and put them right in the heart of the heat of opposition. So that's why God wants them there. And the temple guard shows up back in chapter 5. Verse 25, someone came and reported to them that they were in the temple. So in verse 26, the captain went along with the officers and he proceeded to bring them back without violence. For they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Why were they afraid of the people? Chapter 5, verse 13 says the people held them in high esteem. These 12 men have been healing all of our diseases and all of our infirmities and casting out evil spirits. They're performing signs and wonders. Their popularity has reached grand proportions. So now the apostles are in the heart of the temple. They're teaching the people. And here in comes the temple guard and the captain of the temple guard. And what are they going to do? Well, they've got to bring them back because they've got orders to go fetch the 12 men. So they go into the temple, but they fear the people. So they're caught in the middle of this quandary. And I can just imagine in my own mind's eye the temple captain of the temple guard coming up and saying, look, you guys come with us for a little bit. I mean, we got some people who want to talk to you. The high priest would like to visit with you for a little bit. They do it without violence. They can't just lay hands on them and seize them and drag them away. They can't do that because the people will stone them. And Peter and John could have successfully resisted arrest. Do you notice that? All they had to do was say, no, no. And if you don't like that, you can just deal with the crowd. We're just going to make our way into the midst of the crowd and you come and get us. And what would the temple guard have done? They couldn't have done anything. But Peter and John go. And the rest of the apostles go. Why is that? Because they understand what John Knox said, 16th century reformer, said that one man and God equals a majority. In any situation, one man and God makes a majority. 
So these 12 men can go stand in the Sanhedrin, outnumbered 8, 9, 10, maybe 11 to 1 against the opposition, and fear nothing. They don't fear anything. I mean, the same God who delivered them from jail can protect them in court, right? So they don't resist arrest. And by the way, you never see Christians anywhere in the New Testament resisting arrest. Nowhere in the Bible when a Christian disobeys civil authorities because of the clear command of God, nowhere do they resist arrest. You never see them being drug away from holding their placards on the sidewalk. You never see them fighting back. You never see them resisting in any way. They just go along. Peter, James, and John, they just walk right along. They don't resist arrest whatsoever. Besides this, folks, they have the opportunity to preach in the Sanhedrin. Hey, Peter's going to jump at that. He probably led the way. Let's go. Sanhedrin. The temple guard probably had to run to keep up with them to get in there to proclaim the truth to these men. So they don't resist at all. They just come along peacefully. Verse 27, when they brought them, they stood before the council and the high priest questioned them. Now, before we get to their question, and it indicates three things really that were just sat in the, in the grinder of these high priests and these Sadducees. There's three things that their question indicates really was getting at them. Before we get to that, I want you to notice the one question that they don't ask. The one question that I would want to ask, first of all, that they don't ask is, guess what? How did you get out of prison? Right? Isn't that what everybody wants to know from Houdini? How did you do it? It was locked securely. The guards were there. And you disappeared. How did it happen? Why do they not ask that? Could it be that by this time they have an inkling that it is a supernatural thing? Could it be by this time that they understand it was God who intervened in the affairs of men and delivered them? And if that's what they're thinking is a possibility in the back of their minds, then they don't want to bring that up. Just like they didn't want to talk about the resurrection back in chapter 4. They brought them in because they were teaching the resurrection, but they don't question them about the resurrection because they don't want to deal with the resurrection of Christ. Instead, they say, by whose power did you heal this man? What a stupid question. By whose power did we heal this man? That's really not the issue. The issue was the resurrection, but they don't want to talk about it. So now they bring them in a second time. The one question that's pressing on everybody's mind, they don't ask them. How did you get out of prison? Instead, they ask this weak, insipid, stupid question that they ask in verse 27. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. The first thing that their question indicates that really galled them was the fact that their authority was ignored. We gave you strict orders. See, that refers back to chapter 4 when they threatened them and said to them, we forbid you to teach anymore in this man's name, and then they set them free. And remember what Peter said? Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than him, you be the judge, but we can't stop speaking in about the things that we have seen and heard. And they had given them orders not to teach anymore in this name. And what really makes them angry is that Peter and the rest of the apostles have ignored that on the basis of a higher command. Their authority has been totally ignored. And that frustrates them. We told you not to teach anymore in this. You should have been listening to us. But the second thing that really angers them, look at the question, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Jerusalem is their turf. If anybody's going to teach in Jerusalem, it should be us. And if anybody's going to teach the people in the temple, it should be us. Jerusalem should be filled with our teaching. You filled it with your teaching. See, the second thing that really galled them was the fact that their influence was becoming minimized. 
as the church grew and people grabbed onto the apostles and their doctrine and held to that, it required that they get rid of the Sadduceic doctrine because the apostles held something that was 180 degrees away from what the Sadducees taught. So a rise in popularity with the apostles meant a lowering in popularity with the high priest. And they couldn't stand that. We told you not to teach. You've ignored our authority. And you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. They don't like that. They want Jerusalem to be filled with their teaching. They really want to be the ones that are popular. But there's a third thing. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 28. They understood what they were teaching. They understood the implications that every time Peter or one of the apostles got up and they mentioned the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, it implicated whom? It implicated the Sadducees. It implicated Annas. It implicated Caiaphas. It implicated the whole Sadduceic sect. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You intend to make us guilty for the murder of your quote-unquote Messiah. And so don't make us out to be responsible. And my question would be, Whose door do you want us to lay the blame at? Who else is responsible? And didn't they ask for it? Matthew 27, remember Pilate finding nothing wrong with Jesus? Washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. And the whole crowd at the institution of the high priests and the priests said what? His blood be on us and on our children. You asked for it. At the crucifixion they said, we'll take full responsibility. And here they are a few months later saying what? We're not responsible for that. Don't bring this man's blood on us. We don't bear any culpability for that act. Like a bunch of children, aren't they? We'll take responsibility. No, we won't. Don't bring his blood on us. But they're the guilty ones. You see, they understood what Peter's been teaching all along. So Peter gives his response to these three things. Peter says to them, we must obey God rather than men. He repeats to them what he repeated to them, what he said to them back in chapter 4. We have a higher calling, a higher responsibility we would be pleased to submit to your authority as the governing authorities if it were in concordance and agreement with the Word of God and the command of God that we have. But an angel has just told us what we are to do, and we have to obey the divine command before we obey your command. Very respectful, just like First Peter 3.15. He, he does it with meekness and gentleness. He gives his answer with respectfulness to them. We have to obey God rather than men. And then Peter says, the God... Our fathers, the God of our fathers, raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Now you're going to notice that Peter's message hasn't changed from chapter 4. hasn't changed from chapter 2. Why hasn't it changed? Why does Peter say the same thing all over again? Is it because he can't think of anything original to say? No. What these men need to hear is the same thing they've needed to hear for four chapters. What these men need to be confronted with is the same thing that all men needed to be confronted with. The responsibility for the death of Christ lies at our feet. And we must repent of our sin and trust Him and believe in Him. And that's what Peter's going to give them. And all through this whole book, Peter has been laying the guilt for the crucifixion of Christ right at the feet of those men. Look back at chapter 2. I want to read you a couple of verses. Back at chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Chapter 3, verse 14. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Chapter 4, verse 10. 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And now in chapter 5, verse 30, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging Him on a tree. He's just relentless, isn't He? Just relentless. He just doesn't let up. You killed Him. You killed Him. You killed Him. The death of the Son of God rests at your feet. That is as bold and as brash as you could possibly be in the presence of those who really want to kill you. But that's what Peter tells them. The death of the Son of God is yours. He says in verse 30 of chapter 5, you put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. That was the most humiliating, degrading, cursed way that a person could die. But verse 31, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as Prince and as Savior. Although you humiliated Him by putting Him to death on a cross, God has exalted Him. Him whom you crucified, God raised to life. And once again, these people find themselves on the wrong side of the line. They find themselves as the ones who degraded and put down the very one that God raised to life and exalted to the right hand. And verse 31 says that as position, in His position as Prince and Savior, He does two things. He grants repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Do you notice that? Repentance is something that you must have in order to be saved. No man can be saved if he will cling to his sin. You must let go of your sin, turn from your sin, forsake your sin, confess your sin, walk away from your sin. That's repentance. And to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of attitude towards sin. No man can be saved without that. And anybody who thinks he's saved, who has never turned from his sin, is self-deceived. Not possible. If you've never turned from your sin, you're not saved. I don't care what box you checked. I don't care what card you signed. I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care what you're clinging to. If you're not clinging to Christ and you're still clinging to your sin, you haven't been delivered from your sin. You haven't been delivered from the power of it and you haven't been delivered from the penalty of it. And you will at no time ever be delivered from the presence of it. Because you'll spend eternity for it. In hell. You have to have repentance to be saved. But notice the grace of Christ. Because repentance is a two-sided coin. You must do it. You must turn from your sin. You must acknowledge your sin. You must have a change of heart and change of mind. But look what verse 31 says. As prince and a savior, Christ grants repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It is within His sovereign control and within His sovereign grace to grant repentance. Repentance is a gift. Just as the forgiveness of sins is a gift. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything to receive it. It is something that God gives to us because repentance is granted. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, it has been granted to us to believe. Believe is not something we conjure up in ourselves. Belief itself is an almighty gift, a sovereign gift of grace from Almighty God. Acts chapter 11, it says that God granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2, Paul said, we correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance. It's a gift that God gives to His elect. Repentance is a gift. Forgiveness of sins is a gift. And now Peter says the one thing that's going to put his life in danger, and we're going to see this next week. Peter says in verse 32, And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who will obey Him. That has two implications. Peter is essentially saying to the priest this, You should be leading the people in obedience, but you're not. 
In fact, you've put on trial the very ones who are obedient. And without your obedience to repent and believe on Him for salvation, without your willingness to do that, you are bereft of the Spirit of God. You are devoid of any of the messianic blessings of salvation which the Spirit brings. And unless you will repent and believe on Him, you cannot have the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit is given to whom? All those who, verse 32, obey Him. You notice what's characteristic of believers? They're obedient. The thing that marks a Christian is obedience. There's no such thing as a disobedient believer. There's no such thing as a believer who lives his entire life in a habitual pattern of sin, never delivered from it. There's no such thing as that. We once were children of wrath. Now we have been delivered to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of His dear Son. And now the thing that characterizes us, His sheep, is obedience. And the Spirit is given to those who will believe on Him for salvation. And Scripture calls us obedient. And now I ask you this question. Is your life marked by obedience? And specifically, the type of obedience that we get here in this text, the obedience of proclamation and of being His witnesses. Can it be said of you, by the people who know you, that you have filled Sandpoint with His teaching? Can it be charged against you that you have filled your workplace with His teaching? Could it be charged of you that you have filled your family with His teaching so that you're obedient to proclaim the truth where God has put you? Listen, if our God is able to deliver us, then here's what we can do. We can stand in the midst of the most heated opposition and gently and respectfully proclaim the truth to those to whom God has made us a mouthpiece and trust in Him to be our strength and our deliverer when we need it. And sometimes God will deliver us right out of the heat of that opposition. Sometimes He doesn't. But either way, He is always glorified. So proclaim the truth where you're at and be God's mouthpiece to those whom God has made you His mouthpiece and trust in Him for deliverance. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for this account in Acts chapter 5 of the Apostles. And we pray, Father, that You would help us to be obedient to You in the midst of opposition and to trust in You for that deliverance that we need. We thank You that there is nothing that is beyond Your ability. We thank You that Your arm is not so short that You cannot save. We thank You that you, Your eyes roam to and fro throughout the entire earth looking for someone whose heart is fully Yours that You may show Yourself strong on their behalf. And Father, we trust You for that. We thank You for that. And we pray that You would give us the boldness that is characteristic of these apostles and that our lives would be marked by continual and habitual obedience to Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.